This is American Real, where we aim to inspire, empower, and enlighten you through the stories of our guests. Here's your host, Roger Brooks. How are people finding out about this? Is it typically much later in the child's life? Is there any kind of general things off of that that you could help us understand? There are trends that we see. There's a population of children who do share right away what happened, although that from what we're looking at and what we're finding is a low number. It takes on average 25 years for a child sexual abuse survivor to come forward and share. It's happening a lot. It's happening all around us. And we're starting to see that as a society, um, you know, everything from uh, gymnastics and Olympics and, um, you know, Boy Scouts of America and churches and other organizations. We're seeing it in hospitals and militaries. We're seeing it in the United Nations. Let me guess, you're an entrepreneur looking for ways to grow your business online. And you've probably tried everything to grow your business, including social media, SEO, even paid ads, only to find out that nothing truly works. So what if I told you that writing a book that goes on to become a bestseller is the magic wand, and that you can do it in as little as 30 days, two weeks, or even over a weekend in some cases, without spending more than 10 minutes a day. Would you be interested? My name is Roger Brooks, and I'm the founder and host of American Real TV, where I interview world-class guests to empower others through the essence of story. But I didn't get here overnight, and my mission certainly doesn't end here. Ever since I was a little boy, it's been my dream to empower others through the craft of writing and storytelling. And throughout my life, I came across several mentors who pushed me toward my passion for writing books and helping others to do the same. There is no greater joy than to be working with aspiring authors and to help them establish true credibility within their industry by writing and publishing their first book, which I'm proud to say have all gone on to become bestsellers. Now, you're seeing this video because I just opened enrollment for my new book writing program, where I promise to take you from page one to published in 90 days or less. I will be personally working with you to overcome the same fears and obstacles that kept me from pursuing my dreams all of those years. Simply click on the link below to see how I could help you become a first-time best-selling author. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Lily Devineau. You help survivors reclaim their right to heal from sexual trauma. You're a keynote speaker, advocate, change leader, award-winning author and editor, and a child sexual abuse survivor. Lily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to see you again, and I'm so grateful to be here. Likewise, and we did connect uh, a few weeks ago when we had a, a LinkedIn Live that we did, and you were one of several speakers that came on to tell a little bit about your story. 
Um, today, we're going to go a lot deeper into that. And I have to say right off the bat, we've had a couple of, you know, very, as I would call, uh, sensitive topic, but very important issues, uh, podcasts like this. And I'm, I'm really, first of all, honored to have you on the show to be able to share a part of your story. But um, really, we're all about uh, helping people, you know, helping people that may be going through or knowing people that are going through similar things. So thank you so much for doing this today. Absolutely. And thank you so much for holding the space for these important conversations, because as we can feel, I think these things are coming up in order to be healed. A lot of different issues that are seemingly separate are really interconnected. So when you address one part of it, you actually address the whole. So that's some good news. Yes, absolutely. So look, a lot of what we're going to talk about um, is not easy. Um, you are a professional. You do this for a living. You are a, a, a speaker, a public speaker. So, um, you know, I'd like to kind of turn things over to you to say, if, if you could get us started uh, on how, number one, um, the scope of, 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 of sexual violence and child sex abuse, if you could give us an overview of that in general, if we could start there and then just kind of, we'll, um, you know, I'll ask you some questions off of that. Absolutely. So I was actually really shocked to discover that one in four girls and one in six boys is estimated to, to deal with and experience child sexual abuse, which is before the age of 18 years old. And um, looking at the, at the full scope, which includes adults, it's actually, um, there's sexual violence committed once in every 78 seconds in the United States alone. Unreal numbers, if you think about that, uh, especially when you think about the, the, the children, uh, that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a very significant number. And, uh, you know, again, some of these conversations aren't easy, but I think we have to talk about this uh, to be able to get to a level where people could understand uh, definitions, you know, what, what would be considered sexual violence uh, and, and abuse, I guess that it's you know, least case versus, you know, the, mo the most extreme case, which. Yep, absolutely. So in those numbers, that is looking at um, exposing children to pornographic images and um, taking photographs and videos such as that um, to, uh, to experiencing physical things with the child um, and there's also the question that people bring up in terms of consent, like, well, what if the person is 15 or 16 or something like that? And, you know, they're expressing that they understand and they're expressing consent. That's not possible because you cannot give consent until you are an, a legal adult, which here is 18 in, um, in the legal aspect. So, um, so all of those sorts of things, um, as well as like the physical um, touching and things like that, um, all the way up to, to penetration. And another thing to clarify that people don't often understand is that boys can also be victims of sexual violence. So Lily, how are, you know, how are people, how are the, I guess the authorities and um, 
those that are trying to help people with the trauma, how are people finding out about this? Is it typically much later in the child's life or are we finding that it's a combination of it's, you know, could be in the moment where a child will say something. Uh, is there any kind of general, um, you know, things off of that, 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 that you could help us understand? Absolutely. There are trends that we see. Um, there, there are a pop, there's a population of children who do share right away what happened, although that from what we're looking at and what we're finding is a low number. And what we're finding most often and the data is showing that it takes on average 25 years for a child sexual abuse survivor to come forward and share. And also um, statistics show that roughly 90% from what we can tell, roughly 90% of people, of survivors will never share their story. So this is actually, absolutely. Yeah, so it, it, it's happening a lot. It, it's happening all around us. And we're starting to see that as a society, um, you know, everything from uh, gymnastics and Olympics and, um, you know, Boy Scouts of America and churches and other organizations. We're seeing it in hospitals and militaries. We're seeing it in the United Nations, in the United Nations volunteers. Why is it so prevalent? Like, why, why is this, and is this worldwide or is this pretty much in, you know, more prevalent in the U.S.? Yeah, it's pretty much worldwide. And um, the numbers that we're finding with the one in four girls and approximately one in six boys, um, it fluctuates a little bit. But overall, we're finding that those numbers are pretty consistent across the world. And another important fact is that these numbers are just starting to be collected um, in the past two decades, really. So this is, this is new territory. And I think that that is part of the reason why this is so prevalent um, because of the secrecy and the stigma around the issue. People, a lot of people don't talk about it. A lot of people just want to ignore it. And um, there are also a lot of issues with, um, you know, the survivors themselves not being legal adults, not being able to have certain rights, um, you know, those are passed to the guardian. And we're seeing that 90% of the time, the perpetrators are either a family member or a close friend. So you see these issues are connected. And then there's also questions of, well, if you suspect something or, you know, if something is going on, who do you go to and who do you talk to about that? And even when survivors do share their stories, a lot of times they're not believed. A lot of times if they are believed, they are told that they shouldn't rock the boat, that they should just forget it, that, oh, so-and-so, you know, had a hard life. So-and-so may have even experienced that themselves. And indeed that does happen, um, which is not to say that everyone who has experienced CSA is going to go on to commit things like that, of course, but there is a trend definitely where we see that many perpetrators, most perpetrators themselves were victims as children. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Um, and, you know, the, 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 I guess the scary thing is how, you know, how do we start to break this trend? You know, how, how, 
how are advocates helping and what can we do, you know, just in general as um, uh, people that are concerned, you know, whether it's, you know, family, friends, um, what can we, what can we do to help? Absolutely. Yep. Reaching out and giving space for the children to, to talk with you about what's going on and checking in with them, especially since a lot of people they report to tend to be teachers, um, school nurses, if we're lucky enough to have one in the school, although a lot of schools do not have a nurse. Um, so that's another related and important issue because nurses can identify more easily the warning signs or the behaviors that are associated with children who are experiencing that. And um, so we need to be teaching adults what to look for. We need to be giving children the space to come forward. And importantly, we also need to be passing legislation and programs to put CSA prevention education in schools, mandatory K through 12, um, you know, based on where they're at developmentally. We need to teach them what is okay, what secrets are good to keep and what secrets are not appropriate to keep. And we need to teach them where they can go and who they can talk to. And, you know, collectively as a society, we need to start having serious discussions about this. We need to look at the, the criminal legal system. Um, you know, there are a lot of changes that need to happen. Um, one, in, in, for example, is the statute of limitations. You know, in some states, it's, you know, five years, seven years, 10 years, it varies. And so, as I said before, a lot of times survivors don't come forward for 25 years. So that means that by the time that they are ready to talk about this really difficult to discuss and very hurtful to heal from issue, the, the legal action right has been taken away from them. And that is another set of trauma that, that then coexists. And are these um, laws more state-driven as far as how they educate in the schools, et cetera? Yes, they are. And um, there's an important initiative called Aaron's Law. And it was set forth by Erin Marin, who herself is a survivor of CSA. And she's pushing for this CSA prevention education. And so she's, she and her team have been able to pass it in, um, I believe it's 35 states now. It's definitely gaining ground. And it's been so amazing to you know, be part of that in some small way myself because it's exactly what needs to happen and it's an important step. So um, that's usually, that's what we tend to see with, with these big initiatives and, and legal adjustments is that we see them at the state level first percolating and then getting movement and then getting larger support and then being adopted, you know, federally. So, so progress is happening. Um, you know, certainly the Me Too movement and other, you know, important initiatives like that help to bring awareness to these issues because um, child sex abuse and um, violence experienced as an adult are linked. Um, people who experience CSA are much more likely to be in abusive relationships and to experience other forms of violence um, and to have alcohol and drug issues and other dependency issues and things like that. And so they're more, uh, they're more apt to put themselves in more dangerous environments that then kind of 
keeps the cycle going, if you will. And you like to talk about something called the power of forgiveness. Can you get into that a little bit and expand on why forgiveness is so important, not only for um, uh, the person that has been affected, but for those who have committed the actual crimes? Absolutely. Yep. And forgiveness is the most powerful way that we can break this cycle. And it, may sound cliche, but it really does start with forgiving yourself because we as a society um, are putting a lot of blame and shame on victims, both as children and as adults. And we internalize that as individuals. And, you know, we think, well, you know, what did we do to deserve this? You know, how did I get here? And those sorts of things. And, you know, we're always listening to ourselves and we form our own beliefs and then that we begin to embody those things. And so if we don't start to uncover that, oh wow, like there is something hurtful there. There's a, there's a belief that maybe I was partly to blame or maybe I did something wrong or maybe I could have prevented it if, all of those things. It's important to sit with that and to embrace those and say thank you you know, to those feelings for protecting you and for trying to keep you safe, because ultimately, you know, that's what they were trying to do. And to recognize that it really was nothing that you did. And to just let all of that go, let all of the what ifs and the could be's go and stop shooting on yourself, because it really is what it is and you have to start from the very now and that's where the power is the power is in the now the power is not in the past the power is not in the future the power is in the now and if we start to get in that space as uncomfortable as it may be we can start to see that we do have that power that power is within us and by forgiving ourselves then we can start to open the door toward what may seem impossible, which is forgiving that other person. And I was on that healing journey, absolutely. And it took me, it took me a few years of really working on it, you know, to, to come around and to really understand that by holding a grudge to that other person, you know, whether or not we feel as though it's deserved, you know, as Nelson Mandela so eloquently says, it hurts ourselves, it poisons ourselves to hold on to that hatred and that anger. And it takes our energy, it takes our mental and then our physical energy, because our brain is what is using up most of the calories, doing the burning of the calories. And so what are we doing? What are we churning inside our minds? And forgiveness is that path that clears out all of that negative self-talk, those beliefs. So working toward a place, even just little by little, where you believe that it is possible to forgive that person, that's where it starts. And just know that it is possible. And I actually, my, my forgiveness story comes full circle because 
I testified against my perpetrator when I was 12 years old. And due to the statute of limitations, he was let go um, after a law was changed about it. And so he ended up moving back to back near my hometown. And um, when he had been incarcerated across the country and I knew that he was around and I, you know, had to, I had to really deal with that. And um, he, he did end up coming back and creating some more violence. And then um, before he could be caught by the authorities, he actually left again. And what ended up happening was he was caught a few years later um, in a different state and he was brought back to my home state yet again and he was in the in the courthouse just down the street and i had been working all that time and i sat down in meditation and i sat in my power and in my forgiveness and in my love and i wrote him a letter and i said i forgive you you have no power over me i want you to have a good life I want you to understand all the ways in which you've hurt me and so many others. And I want you to understand the ways in which you've hurt yourself. And I think that you did this because you were hurting from the beginning, because hurting people hurt people. And I had that letter delivered to him and he read it and I feel no ill will. I feel so strong and now I'm able to share that message and I'm able to be at peace with myself. Wow, that's so powerful. Can you share with us, how did you come upon this, the, the power of forgiveness? Did someone suggest it to you? Is it something you read? Are you willing to share that with us? Yeah, I love that question. Um, well, I was raised in um, a very faith-based family, and my grandmother, she really, you know, embraced what, what she had, and the Bible refers to as like the fruit of the Spirit, and, um, you know, forgiveness is, is just core to, you know, biblical and many other teachings. I mean, if you, if you look at the, the spirit teachings, the wisdom teachings across the world, it's all about love. And you cannot have love without forgiveness because we all hurt one another. And so we cannot truly love ourselves and we cannot truly love another person until and unless we learn to forgive. And she just embodied that so well. And I think she really gave me a template to work towards. Wow, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. Okay, so um, the next thing that I wanted to ask you about was what you call um, heart-brain coherence. What is that? Yes, I absolutely love this concept. So I discovered this concept about five years ago, um, and it's by it's research that's done by the HeartMath Institute which is a phenomenal research facility and organization and group. And they look at the science behind the brain, behind the heart. And what they found is that 
the little, there is what's called a little brain in the heart. It's a group of over 40,000 cells and they're sensory neurites, which is the same kind of cells that are in our brain. So there's literally a little brain in our heart and it has its own, it has its own energy field. It has its, its own remembrances. It has its own language. So it thinks and it feels and it communicates independently from the brain and it speaks to the brain. Amazing. So tell us more. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So what's really fascinating is that, you know, we can pick up on the energies like we are electromagnetic beings. And so um, our heart is all about the language of the feeling. And of course, our head is all about the language of the mind. And I'm sure we have all experienced where our head is telling us one thing and our heart seems to be telling us another. Well, that's very true. That's because they may be remembering things in a different way. They, they're clashing at that point. So they're having a little argument and you're just caught in the middle going, well, what do I do? Well, here's what you do. All you do is you get really quiet. You take a couple of breaths. And as you're breathing, I encourage you to just put a little pressure on your heart whether like this or put both hands, whatever feels good to you. And just imagine breathing through your heart. And we're just going to do a few breaths like that. And as you do, just imagine that your heart is the center, like a big bright sun. And with every breath that you take, it's expanding. And just imagine that energy ball getting bigger and bigger and expanding out and around you, around your body, on every side of you. So you're like in a big sphere of energy. And whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes. Hmm. Wow. So aside from feeling really refreshing, <laughs> what that's doing is actually hitting a reset button. And it's saying, hey, come back in harmony, come back together. And what you can do when you're in that space is you can ask yourself, your higher self, your soul, your guidance, the universe, whatever language you call it, you can ask those deep questions and immediately you will know what is right for you because you'll be thinking with your head and with your heart. And so in doing that, we can tap into our superhuman abilities because that's where balance is. That's where healing is. That's where you find the path to forgiveness that's where all of that magic happens. And like I said, it's all in the now. And that's why it's so important to come back to that space. So are you, that, that was a great exercise. Thank you for that. Um, are, you, are you helping people cope through discussion, through communication, through exercises like that? Are you, are you doing that on a regular basis? 
Yes, absolutely. I have a community that I guide through these exercises and I'm actually just getting ready to launch my e-course where I take all of these different things, the research, the energy, uh, medicine, like we just did, all of this different stuff and I lay it out like, okay, so that sounds wonderful and I really want to be there, but I'm back here with I'm mad as hell. I can hardly get out of bed. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I'm, you know, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't trust anybody. How to get from there to being in fulfilling, satisfying relationships with yourself and with those around you and building the life you want to have. And what does that even look like? So it's a journey and I really wish that I had a template that I could use to go through it. And um, I've spent literally thousands of hours um, reading and in therapy and in trauma programs and in school, you know, learning how to research this stuff, how to have these conversations, how to heal and what that looks like. And, um, you know, using my experiences to help other people so that they can let go of those things. And, you know, we've had amazing, incredible results. And, you know, uh, people, I'm, I'm so blessed and I'm so humbled and grateful when people have literally come back and told me that because of our workshops, because of what we're doing, that they literally have changed the way that they're raising their sons and daughters that they've been able to reconnect with their family members that they haven't spoken to in 20 years because of all of this trauma that got in the way. Um, people coming out as survivors for the first time and how empowering that can be. So a lot of transformation as well as you know physical transformation. Of course, I don't make any sorts of claims, whatever, but you know, just showing like what I have seen and what I've experienced personally and you know what I've helped others to be able to do. And using these techniques that I'm talking about and what the science is showing us, using these things, I was able to heal from rheumatoid arthritis that developed the year that I had been sexually abused for the first time when I was seven years old. And so I had had that trauma and that manifested physically because everything is energy and, you know, it had to go somewhere and I didn't know how to let it go. I didn't know how to talk about it, much less let that go. And so, um, you know, so I had rheumatoid arthritis. I was um, registered as an American with a disability. Uh, there were days when I couldn't go to class um, because I couldn't get out of bed. My knees were too swollen. They were too sore. I couldn't hold a coffee mug because my hands were just crippled. So I went from that to not having arthritis to be completely cleared, nothing in my blood, nothing like I can run, I can dance, I can just, I can, I can live my dream life. And that's exactly what I'm doing. That's amazing. And it's just having the, the tools and the knowledge and the understanding, um, I think, as you said, to be able to, to let that go, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. So I, I'm curious about, and, and I don't know, you know, if you know 
these answers or not, but I'm just curious based on your experience. The, the predators themselves, are they considered mentally ill? Or you know, I'm trying to just understand from a mental perspective, mm-hmm. you know, would have, you know, if they say I can't help myself or, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know where it's coming from. Like, how does that play into things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So um, there are there are various terms uh, that actually differentiate what stage of development people may be um, tending toward um, in a sexual manner. So they actually like, you know, pedophilia is what we are most familiar with, but there are actually a breakdown of of others. And it is in the DSM manual, which is where, um, you know, anxiety, depression, and all of those things are laid out. And that's, um, you know, kind of like the manual of, um, you know, of mental illness and other diseases, if you will. So it is, so it is there. Um, As I said, there's not a lot of research. There are a couple of institutes doing research on people who, who, have sexual attraction to children. Um, there's one in Canada that does a lot of research on this. And um, yeah, it, not a lot is known about what's going on in the brain. You know, if, if there's a lot of debate as to whether, you know, this is something that, that can be, um, you know, healed or not, um, you know, whether this can be controlled, things like that. Um, I've personally spoken to people who uh, call themselves recovering pedophiles Mm. and they are in support groups, um, which are very difficult to find and, you know, but they do exist. And, you know, these are people who have come together and made a claim, you know, much like AA where, you know, there's no drinking, but for them, you know, it's obviously more serious um in some aspects in that you know every time that they come in you know this is something that they the the people i've spoken to about this um who've opened up they they do very much um speak about it like it's um something that is wired in their brain that they cannot control um so so that's another thing that's needed too we need to open up those conversations so we can understand because one thing that we know is that this has always been a part of human history um and it's and it's always been embraced in society in certain ways um so and even even in the forefront and so it's been normalized in some aspects you know um child marriages, for example, um, they're completely acceptable in some cultures and in some, you know, religions and and doctrines and and things like that. So, you know, so I think like really bringing awareness and opening up and and questioning and not being afraid to, to ask those questions because there have also been a lot of researchers who have been trying to do this kind of research and have been shut down. Um, you know, there, there are sociologists and other researchers who have lost their jobs because this topic rocks the boat so much. Um, and I found that in, in my own experience. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate and blessed where I am 
um, to have people around me, wonderful mentors who support and encourage me. Um, but it, I will tell you, it was very, very difficult to get to that place and to find those people. Wow. Are the laws strict enough, in your opinion? In my opinion, absolutely not. Um, they're not strict enough. And also the other thing I will say is that like we're talking about, I mean, if we're going to have laws, then we also need to have, you know, the, so the other institutional supports around it so that, you know, um, it's, it's doing what it's supposed to do. And of course that comes back to prevention. It also comes back to, you know, looking at people who commit these things and, and all of those kinds of questions. So absolutely, um, you know, the laws definitely need to be changed. And that's one thing that, you know, I'm definitely working toward in my career um, is that, you know, we need to bring these things into alignment and, and we need to really talk about, um, you know, abuse, both of children as well as adults. What's, uh, how do you feel about uh, the progress and if you were to look out, say, three years, five years, 10 years from now, are you feeling hopeful that uh, we'll not only be able to, um, you know, hopefully crack down harder, but help society so this trend can be broken? That, that's, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's cyclical, right? It keeps happening generation after generation. That's what I'm thinking about is like, how do we, how do we get to the root of it? Um, as best we can to try and help, you know, stop this as much as we can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I definitely am extremely hopeful for the future, especially looking at where we are in this historic moment. You know, people are out protesting again, um, you know, for Black Lives Matter and other things like that. And of course, like I said, these are interconnected issues. Um, you know, the Me Too movement, uh, Tarana Burke and her work, that actually started from children, from African American and other Black girls who continued to come to her with these issues, you know, and um, of course we see, we see this in all cultures. And so, you know, but like I'm saying, like, you know, this this advocacy, this power of it is our time to speak. It is our time to break the stigma. It is our turn to reclaim what is ours. That's the energy that we're working with now. So we can harness that as survivors. And that's what the, that's what Tarana and so many others are doing. And I'm just, you know, humbled to be following in their footsteps and learning all that I can from them and you know to continue to learn how do we make effective change because i think this is something that um is coming up to the forefront now of our societal awareness in order to be healed and so and i think that that has happened other times in history and people have not stepped up to the challenge um these initiatives have been thwarted or uh transmuted in funneled into a different way. And then, you know, ultimately the, the, the cycle continued to continue because there wasn't that addressing. So I'm extremely hopeful. I think now is the time. I think we're creating our society the way we want to in a lot of ways right now. And I think that if we can continue to work together to see, you know, how things are related, um, to see how things are, um, 
you know, different, but also cyclical and all of those sorts of things, you know, I, and I, again, think that that is happening. I think that our awareness as a society is expanding so that we can really ask the question and we can hold the space for the answer. And then importantly, to take those steps that are going to break apart some of those old ways and really birth a new world because that's what we're doing. 100%. Um, and as I was preparing for our conversation today, just doing some research, one of the things that I kept seeing was, you know, in this COVID-19 uh, world that we're living in, a lot of doctors uh, in particular have been concerned with, with children being home uh, so much and not in the schools. What's your position on that? Because there's, again, it's state by state, everything's, you know, still up in the air as we enter into the school season here for the fall. But um, what's your opinions about the kids being home more often than, than normal? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, yeah, like I said, um, you know, a lot of times as we've seen, perpetrators are family and close friends. So that, of course, is problematic. And then not having access to the teachers and um, others who they could go to and, and talk to, and they are mandated reporters. So they would be generally the ones um, who are doing this. So that's definitely, you know, that's definitely a problem, um, you know, with COVID as we're seeing, you know, this is like such a, such a difficult time because, you know, here in the United States, we were anticipating a first wave and then we would have a lull and then there would be a second wave. But in reality, we never had a like a first and a second wave, like we're still in the first wave and, you know, we continue to ride that wave. And so it's really unfortunate because, you know, other, other societies have approached it in different ways. And, you know, I think here, like we're very focused on our independent rights and our independent freedoms. And, um, you know, we're such an individualistic society that we forget that we're also a collective society. And so, you know, I know that people are worried like about socialization of children, for example, and it really sucks to be trapped right now. Like a lot of us are feeling that. Um, but as we're seeing with like COVID being so different and we don't know very much about it because it is so new but what we do know is that you know children are super carriers and um you know oftentimes their teachers can be in vulnerable groups too so that presents problems so you know while we all want to be together absolutely um you know we have to it's like in, in the emergency room, like when you come, when a patient comes in, they're going to address the most important thing. So if there's a gunshot wound and there's also a scrape, they're going to go for the gunshot wound because that's obviously what needs to be addressed first. So I think in this case, COVID-19 is the gunshot wound and children being home is the scrape. And there, and, and this is also bringing other opportunities for us to be home with our children and to see what's going on and to make sure that they're being safe online and to teach them how to be safe online. So this is the time that we can all use to, to learn with one another. And like I said, if we can be checking in with, with the kids 
when, you know, make sure that we go out of our way to ask them, hey, how are you doing? And just make sure that they are appearing okay. Because, you know, what I've seen is a lot of times, you know, survivors, um, they, their mannerisms change completely. Their energy has changed completely. And for me, um, the, the way that it was identified and that I, that I came forward is an adult noticed that I couldn't look anybody in the eye and I wasn't talking at all, which is very not common for me. And, you know, and my energy had completely shifted. My confidence was gone. My energy was gone. My happiness was gone. And, you know, so somebody had, of course, they know their brain didn't go to like, oh, well, maybe CSA happened. Of course not. But they were like, what's going on. And so that gave them the space to sit down with me and ask me what happened and gave me the opportunity to tell. So those are important. So we should be looking for signs and change in personality, um, people not, you know, the child not looking you in the eye, things like that. And any tips on how to approach even a conversation that might be uncomfortable? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So that would be like one side of the spectrum that you might see from their changes of behavior. They also might be on the opposite end of the spectrum where suddenly they might be displaying very overly sexual behaviors. And so that's something that you would notice and and could ask, you know, oh, that should raise some red flags as to, okay, something is different and going on. And and my advice, and there are definitely books, um, the, the Well-Armored Child by Joelle Castiques, who is herself a survivor and advocate and has a wonderful TED Talk. She, she talks about this in, in the book as well. Um, but it's important for you to, to just connect with that child and give them that space to not pressure them and to iterate to them that they are not in trouble. Because, you know, talking to adults is scary. And especially if something has happened, they're going to be feeling guilty. They're going to be feeling shameful. They're going to be feeling those things. So, so then you coming over, you know, just be very understanding, be very gentle, be very patient with them. Excellent advice. Uli, wow. You have really uh, educated me today. Uh, opened, uh, I think, um, our, our, our eyes and our minds to some things that we weren't aware of before. So thank you so much for doing that. I know you have um, a program coming out soon, um, an an online virtual summit. Can you talk a little bit about that and when that might be happening? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me the space to do so. I'm really excited to announce that in September, from um, the September 14th through the 18th, I am hosting a virtual summit called From Wounded to Warrior Goddess. And so that's really looking at, you know, how to how to make this transition from like we were talking about earlier, where you might be stuck and to really address that in a really safe way, in a fun way, because, of course, these things are really difficult to talk about. But here and healing, you know, we know this stuff gets really tough but it can be fun too. And you can have a community around you who supports you, who uplifts you, who understands what you're going through and who are not going to judge you. 
So all of those things are absolutely crucial for the healing process. So, um, I, and people being home, I think also gave them the space to not be able to run away. <laughs> so, so a lot of people are saying, yes, I do have things that are coming up to be healed. What the heck do I do with that? So we're going to help you. That's great. That is awesome. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to connect? Absolutely. I am on Instagram at Lily Devino, and I'm on Facebook. And you can also get a hold of me on my website, which is endcsa.org. And if you want to connect with about the virtual summit and get on the list and get on the emails, you can do that there as well. Lily Devineau, you are an inspiration. Thank you so much. Welcome to the American Real family. And um, so uh, proud to be able to connect with you today and to be able to share uh, a piece of your story. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I always love hanging out with you. This is so great. And thank you for all that you do. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we can help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.